Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. We thank you that um, that you've given us um, in this book a uh, a picture, uh, a record of your dealings with man. How from the beginning you have had a plan, a purpose for what you're doing in humanity, and it's to reveal Christ. It's to reveal who you are and your nature um, both in holiness and in mercy both in being holy other transcendent and yet being very eminent and close to your people we pray that we get a taste of some of that this morning that Christ would be glorified and what you're doing in the church would be um, displayed to us this morning as we go uh, starting in the beginning of uh, Exodus 25. We thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Morning. Are, is, your, um, is, your, is your paddle hand, is it okay? You get you got a little, little ping-pong-itis in here? You doing okay? There's a, there's a, uh, I think next time you guys play, I, I would like for us to have like a, just a, just a cheering, like a section of, of like with popcorn it and work. it doesn't work. Really? They get, they got all kind of, that's because you're throwing popcorn from the popcorn. Yeah. You can't, you can't throw things. All right. We are continuing on, um, Exodus 25, <clears throat> Exodus 25 by way of review. Moses is up on the mountain. He's in the cloud. And we know from last time that he will be up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, God is giving uh, additional instruction to him. And he, he's there up on the mountain at the summit of the mountain. And the first thing that God gives him, and for the next seven chapters... Uh, we'll see, is instructions for the building of the tabernacle. <clears throat> when I say tabernacle, what do I mean? What does that mean, a tabernacle? The dwelling place of God or the tent that holds the... Okay, it's a... I heard tent. Dwelling place for God. It's a tent. Has a, holds the Ark of the Covenant in there and a bunch of other stuff too. It's a portable temple. Now, when you think of portable temple, you think of tent. I got an email from uh, uh, Rebecca. Oh, I always want to say Pickens. It's Hinkle. She wants to. She wants to go uh, camping with with uh, our group and their Arkansas College of Career group. Uh, I'm open to that, but we need to use tents, right? And when you have the idea of a tent, is that a permanent structure or a temporary structure? Temporary. temporary. <clears throat> a temple that's temporary. That's the picture here. That's where we are. Um, God's camping out with them. That's what he's... Dem- <laughs> this is a... This is God's tent. Um... 
And they're going to use this for a long time. I mean, we're talking Moses times, what, 1500 B.C., somewhere around there? I'm trying to remember the math. The several centuries of time go by before Solomon's reign, where Solomon builds the temple. Even whenever they're in the land, even whenever there are kings in place, God's in a tent still. So much so it bothered David. I want to build you a house. Well, you're a man of war. can't do it. You've got blood on your hands. Well, your son will be a son of peace. I mean, there's, there's this whole epoch of Israeli history, Hebrew history where God's in a tent. That's what he designed. That's where, um, that, that's the plan that he's giving Moses now at this point, knowing that this is going to be, um, uh, going to be there for a while. And he gives three parts to his instruction to Moses. We're going to go through uh, verses 1 through 9 today, just the intro of this. Exodus 25, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you, will receive, that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make. Three parts to this instruction. Can you guess what they are? I'll give them to you. They all start with C. Contribution. Contribution. From what? The community. From the community... Those having what? No, that doesn't have to be C. Contribution, you got the C taken care of. Contribution from a... Somebody said it, I think. A willing heart. Contribution from a willing heart. Contrite heart. I should have called you earlier. That would have been great. Contribution from a contrite heart. Sorry about that. Um, Then, what is the uh, second one, would you think? Construction. Construction. With precise materials. And then you have uh, that all of this is to be made, that it's consistent with the heavenly plan. So now I have fulfilled Tammy's instruction to me (laughs) to make it memorable. Okay. Contribution. That's the first issue addressed, isn't it? The word contribution here is often used of an amount taken from a large quantity for a sacred purpose. That's the point. It's a holy purpose. It's set apart for this holy purpose. And you see that with sacrifice, money, or produce. To whom is, to whom is Moses to... Uh, oh, man, I messed it up. To whom is Moses to speak? I didn't end on a preposition. I'm really working on it. Uh, 
To whom is Moses to speak? The people. The entire congregation, right? Why not just the special folks with funny hats? So everybody. Everybody. Why, why, why would he do that? They're all involved. Where's he going to live? Among the people. He's going to dwell with all of them, not just in a separate little place where just special folks can be around. He's going to be in the midst of them, dwelling in the midst of them. No one's going to be excluded. What does this show about God? He's up on the mountain. We talked about last week. That's He's holy other. He's transcendent. And yet, what is he doing here? In the midst of them, what do we call that? Okay. Descending. Descending, condes- condescending in the good sense, not in the yes. moron. Uh, in a good sense, condescending. Um, what, what, uh, if we talk about God being transcendent, if, he's, if he is dwelling with everyone, his presence is known everywhere among the people. That's not just transcendence, that's also what we call eminence, right? He's, he's there. Name for me another worldview that has that same idea. You won't find it. Where God is both holy other, personal, and eminent. You're not going to find it. Um, It's either so eminent that we're all God, the earth is God, the trees are God. That bug crawling on the ground is God. Don't step on it. It's all God. That's holy, eminent. That's completely eminent. Not personal. It's so eminent that it's really nothing at all. Then there is holy transcendent. The will of God is unknowable. We cannot know him. He is so far above us. He's great merciful, but we just don't understand how that's merciful. I can think of a certain religion that views things that way. Can't, can't get to him. In the biblical God... The worldview espoused here, God is, yes, different, creator, apart from us, but he's also very eminent. He dwells among his people. And you see that here. He's he's seeking all of the congregation to contribute to this because they're all going to be involved in it. God will dwell in the midst of the community. No one's going to be excluded, and it shows his eminence. But what is distinct about this contribution? Is this compulsory? What is it? It seems a free thing. Say it. Say it. It's a free will offering. Free will offering. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Did we utter those words? Yes. It's voluntary. Whose heart impels him to do it is another way to say it. Whose heart compels him to do it. Why are they not compelled by God to do this? Do you remember in our discussion of the, the, the field, the harvesting and all that, where the law is you can only harvest you know, a certain amount, don't harvest the corners because you, you need to reserve that for the poor to glean. That's the, kind of part of the welfare program, is that they got to work in the corners to get the stuff that you don't harvest. That's a compulsory giving, by the way. You can't harvest to the corner. 
If he compels them to give that way, why not compel them to give this way? Why make this voluntary? It's a hard issue. That doesn't answer the question. <laughs> yes. Well, some of these things are very valuable. Some of these things that they don't have, you know, like bonds and purple and blue and you know things like that. And it also goes to the New Testament where he says to, to the rich man, "Give all of your things to the poor, poor and come follow me." Well, and he didn't do it from the heart. It is a hard. It is a hard issue, and and there was an element in the garden where it was a voluntary obedience. But there were certain things that were that were stru- structured out. Don't eat the fruit was kind of a compulsory thing that they disobeyed. Um, what does this tell you about God? That He would make this. Offering this contribution to the taber- the tab- I almost said temple, to the tabernacle, voluntary. What does that tell you? It's not going to be in your study Bible. Well, he knows his creation. He knows that they're going to do it because he knows his ability to draw them to himself. Okay. And that's what he does. It also shows just how great God is. That he's got his people. He's not forcing them. Hey. I, I need a I need a tabernacle. You need to build this for me. Just he wants to throw some stuff up, but he asks, "Hey." He he gives the he. It's an external call. It's a it's a general call for an offering, right? He's interested in an honest response. And an honest response from the heart, not just I'll look really good with the, you know, the more higher up the the, the cast line here if I give some whatever. Yeah. This, it kind of reminds me of a father training up his son. Saying, okay. You know, like, um, son, you're going to give me this amount of thing, or you're going to make me a, a birthday present or something. It's it's more like he's trained them this far, and it's kind of a little test, just a little test, but it seems uh, purposeful and training. All right. So there's a, there's a discipline element to it. Where is your heart? A testing of the heart. Uh, there, there is a, um, uh, a, a uh, display of his graciousness and that he's not compelling something necessarily for himself. And if God weren't worthy of this, people wouldn't give it to it. And God knows uh-huh. his own work, so he knows that they'll do it because he's, he's worthy of it. He knows his own worth. He's comfortable in his own skin, so to speak, uh, that, uh, that he would issue the summons for a contribution, knowing full well that they will give it because he's God. He logically has to be conceded. There's also a variety of possible gifts. A variety of possible gifts would... Very good. To, to be a part of that community, a part of giving. It's not just only those who are rich who have bronze, silver, and gold, 
Right. But it's, if you have a goat and you're willing to sacrifice it and get the goat skin. Right. Or if you've got a brush and can give the goat hair. I mean, right. it, it, you're right. That What a great observation. Where that, do they even get the resources? The, true. The, the, the point is that they are of different economic means, some of them poorer than others, and yet all of these contributions fall along, all the, along the spectrum of where they are economically, right? And, and, and everybody can give from where they are. That's, that's another thing. I think he wants them to give out of joy rather than uh, give out of demand because he's obviously living in a tent. He doesn't need a huge fine linen you know, masterpiece to live in. He's already living in a tent. Yeah. Does that sound familiar to you? Giving out of joy? Is there somewhere, I don't know, New Testament related? Acts 2 and 4. Okay. Which is not a communist idea, by the way. That's compulsory. The early church is what you're referring to. And the giving of the early church, everyone gave to those who were in need within the body. They gave uh, willingly, joyfully. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8 talks about um, when you give, be systematic, proportional, and not out of compulsion through some kind of mandatory Baptist capital campaign, uh, but that you give out of, uh, out of the heart. For God loves a what? Cheerful. Cheerful giver. And you see that modeled here. Look at how particular, look at verse 3 how particular he is with the materials. Do you notice anything about how these are listed? What do you see? You mentioned the metals. What do you see? How are they listed? What kind of pattern do you see? From the most valuable to least valuable. Okay. the metals are, but... Okay, just the metals are. (laughs) There's categories of stuff. Tammy mentioned that earlier, the categories of stuff. You've got, and I've got them listed this way. Maybe you see it a little differently. There are metals. There's dyed weaving material. There are these whole materials. There's skins of animals. Then there's acacia wood, oil and spices, and then there's stones. That's kind of the, the, the categories of stuff you see. They're in descending value, especially the metals. You're right. It's the clearest with the metals. They're in descending value. Um, and the way the idea here is that the closer an object was to the Holy of Holies, the more valuable the metal that was used in its construction. So you see the gold being really close. I mean, everything Holy of Holies is gold. <clears throat> then you, you move back to silver and then out to bronze. And it's the same way with the dyed materials. This blue dye uh, that they use for the blue, the blue and purple and scarlet, the blue was made, and this, I just found this interesting. This is free. It was made from this shellfish that they pulled out of the Mediterranean Sea. They extracted this kind of dye from it, from the shellfish. Can you imagine the labor-intensive work that would be? A, to catch it. B, to, they didn't have syringes to draw it out. I mean, they had to beat it down, pull it out. I just find that fascinating. There's there's a lot of work that goes on that. So that would be the most expensive. And then all the way to the to the very... Least expensive is scarlet, 
stuff, which is scarlet of the worm is the word used here. And it's referring to this bug that they had everywhere that they could squish. Where It's not frogs. It was a bug and, and uh, a worm. And they would squish it down, and they would draw out the red dye for the so it's the the most expensive in blue purple and then the red um, every aspect is is showing this progression of holy of holies inner court outer court kind of idea the fine linen he references here is like what pharaoh dressed joseph in whenever uh, joseph rose to power goat hair not so costly they had plenty of goats. Um, they had gotten a lot of them from the Egyptians on their way out, right? They had huge flocks. Um, the, the skins, uh, let's see, tanned, tanned skins. There's a reference in the, in the, some of the skins that are referenced are, uh, some of the translations have this reference to a sea cow. I'm not, I don't think the ESV has that in here. I don't see it. Um, but there's the idea that, that some of it may have been dolphin skin from, uh, I know, I know, it's our closest cousin. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, but, that, but those skins of, of, uh, that he's talking about, these tan skins, they provide the covering for the tabernacle. And the acacia wood was very common. And you have oil and spices, for, and then the precious stones that are used for the ceremonies and the clothing of the priests. That's a lot of different variety of things, right? A lot of, a lot of different stuff. Where are they getting this? You said that they didn't have this stuff. Didn't they get stuff from Egypt? They did. They got it from Egypt. Uh, they plundered the Egyptians without raising a sword. Um, so there's a lot of this stuff they have from Egypt. The other things that, that they are to be uh, using can be gotten from the land around them, like the Red Sea, uh, you can get dolphins from the Red Sea. Um, the acacia trees were plentiful, and they had lots of herds. All right, so that's kind of that's kind of the materials used, and we'll go through that more as we go along. But what uh, what is this divine pattern that's mentioned here? What is that all about? Um, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Did, did God give Moses a blueprint? We discussed Mount Horeb last week. Okay. There's a, a pattern of uh, how they, they ascended the mountain. Okay. Who, who went where? There was three specific levels on the mountain that they ascended. Okay. Well, he gets very specific in the next few chapters. Yes, he does. Every aspect of the design is spelled out. Um, and, and what does that tell you about this structure? By whose will is it created? God's will. Yes, Jesus, because he's the angel of the Lord there. But um, God's will, does it leave uh, room open for human imagination here? Well, um, I guess I got this from my notes. But yes, you did. Probably. Go ahead. Okay, so it says exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. And not, I mean, we don't know this yet, but not everything was written down specifically how you need to make it. Mm. But it was supposed to be general enough 
so that when they read it and then they see the tabernacle, they, they know that this is what what's written about. Sure. So they don't have an exact blueprint. But Moses, I think God gave Moses, Moses the, the vision of what it should be exactly. Based on what? He gave Moses the vision of what it should be based on what? We've talked about the summit and the, and the midway down and, the, and that reflection of the three stages. This is a lot more detailed than just the three stages, though, isn't it? Garden of Eden. Okay. Moses didn't see Garden of Eden. The shadow of the temple in heaven. Now, where would you get that notion? Remember reading it somewhere. Hebrews is always a good place to go. Uh, Hebrews 9 talks about that the, the, the temple on earth was a picture of the shadow of the heavenly temple. That's exactly what it is. Um, there's an idea here that God is giving Moses uh, a vision, or maybe a, just taking him up and taking, letting him look around like he did sort of with, with, with John, of what the heavenly temple looks like as a as a pattern for this um, for this uh, uh, tent, <laughs> I don't know what. To, so he's gonna he's gonna take what he sees in heaven and put it in terms of a tent. Are you talking about like Todd Burpo? No, I'm not. Uh, but the word pattern here uh, is almost exclusively referring to the imitation of something that's already in existence. In Hebrews nine twenty three and twenty four tells us that the pattern for this tabernacle is the heavenly temple. What's the purpose of this tabernacle? So God's going to dwell here. It's to give mankind a, an analogy for God, for who God is, for the Trinity, for all of that. Gives a place for people to worship. Okay. Gives a place for people to worship, gives, gives us some, some information about who God is. It says, is this going to be God's new home? It's temporary. It's temporary. It's a tent. But it is the dwelling place that he's requested so that he might be among them instead of being just at the mountain. Right. Does God need a temple built by human hands as if he needed anything? It was to keep the people mindful of, of knowing that he is with them wherever they go. Very good. Yes. It is a, it is a representation that he is their God. And there is people. And he tabernacles among them. There's the idea of the temporary lodging here. It epitomizes a nomadic lifestyle. And the tabernacle conveys, again, it conveys this idea of God's eminence. God is symbolized. It symbolizes that God is in their midst and it points to his eminence. God's eminence is displayed today. Yes? No longer in a tent? In his people. It's no longer a tent that travels as a place um, that you may or may not get to enter into. You may or may not get close to. In Christ, the barriers are ripped, right? I, I went, uh, I'm, I'm doing a year-long reading deal um, and I'm in Mark right now. And uh, Mark chapter 1 talks about the baptism of Jesus. And it says he came up out of the water. 
And it says the heavens were torn. And the dove comes down. I think, why, why not just say parted? Why not just say uh, that something was revealed that wasn't there before? Why use the word torn? Because it's destroyed. There's an, it's, it's gone by the wayside. It's not needed anymore. We're going to... We're going to... It's temple. We're going to get into this a little bit later, but there's an idea out there, and I think, I think there's some merit, that the temple not only represents the, you know, the, the summit, where you have the hot, you know, God's place and then the middle, but it also represents all of... It's a microcosm of all of the cosmos. That the Holy of Holies is the unseen heaven. That the inner court is the heaven that we see, cloud, stars, sun. And that the outer court is the earth itself. And it represents the three areas of, of the universe, of, the, of our existence. When it says the heavens are torn, it's not talking about the cloud structure. It's talking about the veil between what is seen and unseen. And that that moment in time when Christ is baptized, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And there's a dove descending on him, showing, well, the, the nature of God, very real form in, in, in Trinitarian form. Um, it's very much a temple word of what happens when we see when Christ on the cross, the veil is ripped top to bottom in the temple itself. Again, what's the plan? That all things might be united in him things in heaven and things on earth, right? Um, in Christ, the barriers are ripped. Ephesians 2.22 says, In him you also, you is plural, to the Ephesians, and to you, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Not a tent, but a people. Is that the idea? Not a tent, but a people. How is this tabernacle, how is this tent, how is this building built? What does it start with? A willing heart. Doesn't it? Reformed folks are cringing. It starts with a willing heart. Because, Paul would say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart from the heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will begin to be placed into the temple of God. How can I come willingly? I know my heart. <laughs> right? I prefer everything but being part of something. I want to be a rugged individual. I want to be a merkin. How can I come willingly? Hebrews 8.10 For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hebrews is New Testament, isn't it? Referring to the people of God, he's applying that to the church in Hebrews, isn't he? From a willing heart, we are made into the temple of God. Not individually, but corporately. 
but he provides the materials for the temple. He built you with gifts and callings that he sees fit. Right? You contribute what you have, what he's given you. Uh, Ephesians 4, 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What you bring to the table is what God has you bring to the table. Don't despise the gift. If you bring goat hair, thank God you got goat hair. If you bring gold, don't be proud that you're bringing gold. It's all supplied by the measure of Christ's gift. And no one is excluded. It's not just the people with the funny hats that get to be part of this temple. All are built together. Look in uh, Ephesians 4.11, starting in verse 11. No one is excluded. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip themselves, the saints, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Every joint with which it is equipped. The stones, the oil, the goat hair, those cute dolphin skins, all of that is important. All of us have a place, a place in the temple and function as one in the temple, not distracted by lesser things, moving forward with what do I have to give from the heart to build up the temple to the glory of God. Each part working properly. We have to watch each other, right? We're accountable to each other, one another. Am I working properly? Am I doing what is good for the temple of God? What's the purpose of this? Just busy work until he comes back? What's the purpose of this? Revelation 21, 3 through 5. I want us to remember this section as we go through the next several chapters on the tabernacle. This is the goal. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Bank on it. It will happen. The words are trustworthy and true, and it's said by the one on the throne, and I've never known him to lie. Do a casual search uh, through the New Testament and see how many times the apostles refer uh, to our striving in holiness, our, our, um, uh, our work that we do as in terms of building up one another. Augustine uh, prayed, command what you will, then provide what you command. And it drove a guy named Pelagius, gave him a nosebleed. And it also uh, caused the Bishop of Rome to go a little wobbly, but that's another story. But what, what he said was just summarizing the scripture. We work because he is working in us. And it's toward an end toward the purpose he has been displaying since the beginning, since the garden. Okay, what impact does that have on us now? What impact does it have to know that everything that you do is temple work? Everything you do is temple work. Before the gaze of a holy God, does that put a little bit more meaning into what we do on a daily basis? From goat hair to gold, whatever we do is temple work. All of life is lived before the gaze of a holy, merciful God who because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. It's all of grace, but grace is given with a purpose, isn't it? Not just for us to sit back and be kept to ourselves, but it's to be spent building up each other, working to add more stones, so to speak, to the temple. 1 Peter 2, 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may, be, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's purpose to it. There's a point to it. We're moving toward an end. God, dwell with men.
will be his people and he will be our God. And I'm going to close with this from Paul, 2 Timothy 1.14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted And it's based upon a heavenly pattern, isn't it? He, he's not just, he hasn't His son. left us to grow up in the dark. Right. He hasn't left us to grow up in the dark. He has provided for us a pattern to build the temple as well. And it's Christ. Um, the, uh, the prototype, so to speak. He went before us. And it's because of Christ that, that uh, we are empowered to do it, not out of our own will. It's because of what Christ has done. It's all built upon the finished work of what Jesus has done. Yeah, any other comments? You're very quiet. That's okay. We need coffee. All right, I'll pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you that you have not left us um, ignorant of what you're doing, but that you and your word have clearly proclaimed that you're calling the people to yourself that we may be holy and blameless before you and that you are building a dwelling place for yourself within your people where there is no distinction between ethnicity or social economic status but that heaven and earth have collapsed in the person of Christ and you've placed us in him and made us his body, the temple of the living God. So I pray that we live very much aware that we work and act and think under the gaze of a holy God who loves us and gave himself for us and yet has a pattern based upon the clear picture of what we see in Christ. Call us further up and further in into Him. Let us love Him more than any distraction, than anything that would um, seek to tarnish the stone the gifts and the callings that you've given each one of us to build up your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.